The following conversation contains discussions about abuse, sexual assault, and self-harm. If you need support, help is available. You can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-737-732. Welcome to this conversation with winner of the 2021 Stella Prize, Evie Wilde in conversation with Stella Prize judge Elizabeth McCarthy about her winning novel, The Bass Rock. Evie Wilde appeared via video link from her home in the UK to discuss her gothic tale of toxic masculinity and the impact the Stella Prize continues to have on the Australian literary landscape. Hey everyone, thank you so much for coming tonight. My name is Elizabeth McCarthy and I'm a radio producer and presenter and literary critic and I'm also one of five judges for this year's Stella Prize. Welcome to this special event. It's great to see people out in Melbourne um, celebrating literature once again. I'd like to acknowledge tonight that we are meeting on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past and present and to any First Nations people who are here with us tonight. This event is presented in partnership with the Wheeler Centre and the Stella Prize. And the Stella Prize is a major literary award celebrating Australian women and gender non-conforming writers. And Stella is an organisation that champions cultural change. In August 2020, myself and judges Jane Harrison, Tamara Zimmett, Ian C and judges chair Zoya Patel began reading over 160 entries that were submitted for the 2021 Stella Prize. We were guided by Stella Prize Program Manager Daniela Baldry and Stella Prize Executive Director Jacqueline Bouton. As judges, we took great pleasure and pride in the process of critiquing the entries, and we recently decided on our long list and short list. And all details of the long list and the short list are up on the Stella Prize website, and I strongly encourage everyone in this room and everyone streaming at home to read the full long list and be dazzled by the strength, the power, the versatility, and the excellence in the range of titles that have made this year's long list. Last week, it was announced that writer Evie Wilde is the winner of this year's Stella Prize for her novel, The Bass Rock. With the support of Stella Prize major sponsors, the Wilson Foundation, Evie has been awarded $50,000 and I'm so rapt to be able to speak to her this evening about her winning novel. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Evie Wilde. Uh, she grew up in Australia and the UK, and she is part owner of Review, a small independent bookshop in London. Her first novel, After the Fire, A Still Small Voice, won the John Llewellyn Rees Prize and a Betty, Tra Betty Trask Award. Evie's second novel, All the Birds Singing, was published in 2013. It was longlisted for the 2014 Stella Prize and the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction and shortlisted for the Costa Novel Prize and the James Tate Black Memorial Prize. She is the winner of the 2013 Encore Award, the Jerwood Fiction Uncovered Prize and the 2014 Miles Franklin Award for that particular novel. Her third novel, The Bass Rock, was published in 2020 and last week it won the 2021 Stella Prize. Hello, Evie, and congratulations. Hello, thank you so much. 
<laughs> Maybe I'll talk about the Bass Rock. It's a work of fiction canvassing centuries of women's all too real experiences of persecution by men. In the 1700s, we meet Sarah, who's running for her life after being branded as a witch responsible for destroying a community's soil, crops and animals. In the 1950s, we meet Ruth, unknowingly wed into a marriage of convenience to a man who uses her as a babysitter, a housekeeper and someone to be gaslighted when she shows signs of non-compliance. And in the present, we meet Vivian. Having been released from psychiatric care, Vivian is trying to rediscover her place in the world to get a footing back in the world and reckon with frayed relationships and betrayals. It is a brilliant novel. What more can I say? It's, an, it's a masterwork. Um, I reread it over the weekend. I got even more out of it with a rereading. Um, it's set across multiple time periods and with three distinct narrative voices throughout. And the judges loved it. Um, it blurs the, blurs the line between the past and the present and the real and the imagined, the natural and the unnatural world. And I think I should just launch into my very first question with Evie. What do you reckon, Evie? Yes, please. Okay, cool. Let's just talk about the Bass Rock itself. It is situated in East Lothian, Scotland. I've been Googling it quite a bit. Tell us about why you set this particular novel in that place, Evie. Mm -hmm. Well, the Bass Rock is just off the coast of North Berwick and it's a place that I used to go a lot as a child. I had a, a great aunt who lived in the house that the Bass Rock is set in, um, which is this big old grand house um, with a ballroom and a piano and a view of the sea and a like, deeply weird old money place. And um, And she was this kind of really interesting woman who lived alone and she'd had a stroke and she was part paralyzed and, and pretty much the only thing she could say was lovely. So she said that about everything. And, um, and so for me, it was quite a weird place. You had to be very quiet in the house and there was this wild landscape that had been papered over with a golf course. And North Berwick is a, it's sort of a, a British holiday seaside town. They've tried to make it pretty. And actually, you know, there's tar on the beach and there's gannets on the rock and they stink. And, you know, it's it's very rocky and very windy. So it always interested me as this, like, you know, the, the English trying to make something really wild, really tame. Um, and then when my uh, grandmother and my father died, um, in quite quick succession, I inherited their photo album um, of of my father's childhood. And there are all these photographs of him in front of the Bass Rock, you know, the same kind of pictures that I had of myself when I was a kid. And it did this sort of weird telescoping of time for me that the, you know, the rock is in the background looking exactly the same um, 60 years ago. And, you know, I went there when I was eight months pregnant to do a bit of a recce and it just, you know, you cut out the, um, the golfers in their, in their modern outfits and, and it just looks exactly the same. Um, so, and there's also, there's a history on North Berwick of, uh, witches being, well, women being accused of, of witchcraft. Um, and there's still this old little 
church there called St Andrew's Old Kirk, which is where they were accused um, and and then they were executed in Edinburgh. Um, so it's just this place that has a strange nostalgia for me, which is often where I start with my writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I start with a place and then and then I kind of add the people into it. Well, speaking of people, I think that um, one of the wonderful aspects of this novel is that every character in the book, and there are many characters, so we have our three chief characters, but there are also many peripheral characters, um, they are all really interesting. And I can only imagine what it was like, Evie, to write this novel and to have to give some of these peripheral characters limited space so that you could, you know, showcase the three chief characters. So so please do tell us now about the three central women, Sarah in the 1700s, Ruth in the 1950s and Vivian in a, in a contemporary setting. Tell us about how you, um, where these characters sprung from and uh, what you wanted to do with them and what you wanted to explore. Well, I think when I when I sat down thinking, hopefully I'm now writing a novel. Um, I had a I had a new baby, so time was really really squeezed, and I was just working in his um, naps, and so it turned out to be quite a handy thing because I couldn't fret too much about it. I just had to write for an hour, and that's all I had. Um, so there were originally probably about probably about 13 more voices. I was just throwing an hour at it a day and then not thinking about it the rest of the time. Um, but these three kind of stuck and they felt like they were connected in some way that I couldn't quite put my finger on. Um, so I, I think I started with Ruth, who's in the 1950s, because I was thinking of my grandmother, um, who follows a similar timeline to Ruth. She married an older man who had two grieving children and she sort of took them on not very well um, and and lived in kind of strange, lonely places, never at North Berwick, but, um, but in similar English seaside towns. Um, and by the time I knew her, she was a, an alcoholic and um, she was desperate to be dead um, and I I saw her very much through the lens of my father who hadn't enjoyed her as a mother uh, she was fiercely intelligent had never done anything really with her brain um, and she was convinced that by the time she got to heaven because she was fairly sure that was where she was going um, she would meet up with my grandfather who had died previously and he would have already met up with his first wife who died when she was young and beautiful and vivacious and and she sort of had this feeling of never living up to the first wife um and so I I always kept her at arm's length um I found her a little bit scary and and um hard and um it was after she had died and my father died that I saw these photographs of her being young and um, she felt like she was so much more in her body. She was interacting and looking a bit sexy and interesting and a bit dangerous. And I started to imagine another version of her life for her. So that's sort of where Ruth started. Um, and then she morphed very much into her own person. Um, and I think 
Sarah in the 1700s who's been accused of being a witch. I think, you know, the the witchcraft came in quite early because I had that link to North Berwick. Um, and I wanted to I wanted to think about how um, witch hunting has maybe not gone away. It's just changed shape and, you know, we give it another name now. Um, so I kind of wanted this quite fast paced quest through the forest with Sarah. Um, and also Sarah's section is told through the lens of a young man who's kind of, you know, he's just turning into a man. He's just getting to the age where, manly things are expected of him um and then and then Viv is a very very thinly veiled version of me so mm-hmm. that sort of doesn't take all that much explaining <laughs> um but I wanted a character who um who reached a certain age and didn't have any of those things that we see as evidence of a successful life um she doesn't have a partner in the beginning she is a doesn't really have a job um or children she's not married um so so did you find um that these characters really uh came fully formed to you or or did you really have to write into them those three were pretty pretty well formed actually um i think their voices were there i think i tend to my inner monologue is a mixture of Viv and Ruth um, anyway. Um, And so, you know, it was really, it was really about kind of turning towards the things that I normally repress a bit, you know, trying to, um, trying to walk towards the things I felt really uncomfortable about um, in their voices, you know, really, I think with that, with Viv, it's quite, um, she can be quite self-lacerating. Um, so yeah, I think, and, and then I've got all of, there are, there are sort of what get described as intervals of murder throughout the book. Um, and those were a lot more tricky to pin down. They were somehow, um, I've got a whole folder of of murders that didn't make it into the book and they kind of needed a bit of a shape to them. Um, So with such short, with such short pieces, it's quite hard to make them all different enough that it's not just a relentless kind of dirge of death. Mm. Um, So that was, that was sort of a tougher problem. I imagine too that um, the passages involving Viv allowed some lightness to come into your writing as well because, I mean, what we've sort of described and heard about tonight so far makes the book sound incredibly grim, but there is uh, there is uh, some sardonic moments, some laugh-out-loud moments, I would say. Um, and, I, uh, yeah, I, I think that Viv is perhaps a vehicle to let that light into into the novel overall. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I can't um I can't imagine writing a book without funny moments, you know. And also the worst moments of life are normally the funniest, you know. Mm. Everyone's everyone's trying not to laugh at a funeral. Um it's kind of it's just a way of coping and and it's such a weird thing. Life is so strange, death is so strange. And I think um something that I see in, um, my peers is that 
you know, if you are in a situation like Viv is in when, when you like things are not going well, the, the way to cope is to turn it into a kind of almost like your life into a sitcom. Um, mm-hmm. and, and within that, I also wanted to explore a sort of rom-com idea that, um, you know, Viv does meet this young man, well, this man and, um, and the expectation of what's going to happen um, is that he's going to somehow make her complete and she's going to, you know, look after him or whatever. Um, and I really wanted to explore that. And, and I think there's a lot of, you know, romantic comedies are enjoyable to watch because they're funny and because, you know, it's, it's this simplified, boiled down version of people. And I really wanted to have some fun with that. And then just sort of extinguish it. Um, That's quite exactly what you simply. did. <laughs> <laughs> you totally did. You stole this. You stole that rom com away from us. Um, I, I'm curious too about so this the novel um, as we've talked about is set at, um, in Bass Rock and or near Bass Rock and the house in which um, this novel is set is really a character in itself. So, mm-hmm. and there are so many great sort of overbearing, um, haunting and mysterious houses in, in literature's Gothic traditions. And, um, so this house is the site of Ruth's unhappy marriage. It's where Viv goes to retreat and, uh, retreat from the world, but also she's reading the house for sale. Um, could you talk about the house and how you decided to embellish it with, with hugeness and loneliness and ghosts and, mm. and objects that Ruth, when she's, you know, having fits of despair could just smash. Um, mm. because, because yeah, the house functions as, as a character. I think because I spent a lot of my childhood in that house um, and it's a spooky house, you know, with, with just one woman rattling around in it. Um, it, it always stuck in my mind as, as a haunted and be just enormous. Um, so I guess within that, you know, that sort of Gothic without, without me even trying. Um, and I think the the chintz of an English life is so interesting. The kind of little ceramic dogs and cottages and vile little things that they collect. My grandmother, um, who Ruth is based on, once told somebody that she liked pigs. And so as a result, her house was completely cluttered with ceramic pigs. Yeah, wow. And she, you know, she was a chain smoker and she'd be like, another pig, darling, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> it was I think the there's so much in the objects in that house mm-hmm. that is about the stuff that's unsaid mm-hmm. and so when Ruth is um when Ruth feels anger she starts to break the um you know often wedding gifts um and she goes about it quite systematically and I think for me, that feels like a 1950s version of self-harm, which um, is kind of my generation's anger. That's how a lot of um, my generation's anger came out through cutting or slapping and stuff like that. And I just, I think there's a, it's almost like things are getting closer to the edge, you know, things are, um, 
any minute now, any generation now will actually be able to speak about what's making us angry and do something about it. It feels like it's rising. Mm. There's something to um, kind of gratifying as a reader about how um, how Ruth smashes one of the ornaments in the house. It's sort of, mm. we feel a sort of catharsis that I imagine she would have felt doing it. One of the aspects too of the house is um, ghosts. And this is a, is a novel that has ghosts in it. And the judging panel was so impressed by the way you wrote the supernatural into this story, Evie. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine ghosts are easy to write because one of the things about ghosts is they're also kind of hilarious and a bit kooky. And, um, you know, I mean, there's a sort of a long line of, of ghosts um, just being sort of silly, make-believe um, mm. features of stories. So how did you, how did you write a ghost that um, had, had integrity? Um, (laughs) I think um, well so first of all I love reading about ghosts I love writing about ghosts I don't believe in an afterlife but I do believe that people experience ghosts and you know what are they Um, so Sarah's ghost is is based very much on a on a ghost that um, made me move out of my last flat (laughs) which is an embarrassing yeah. thing to admit. Um, but it was one of those situations where I was very sleep deprived and recently lost my father, like lots of big life stuff going on. Um, and was feeling like I was losing myself a lot. And, um, but the sleep deprivation is probably the main thing because that can make you hallucinate. Um, and I didn't ever see anything, but what I did do was feel something. And then I could imagine so strongly a person I'd never seen before standing in a particular way, doing particular things. And my son, you know, babies are nightmares for seeing ghosts. That's like having, you know, a dog on steroids Mm. and he would be waving at someone all the time or like staring deeply into a mirror but not at himself, but something behind him. So there was, um, there was also a swarm of bees. Like <laughs> there was, there was a lot of stuff, um, that I'm, I'm quite comfortable with saying, you know, it wasn't a dead person floating around, but it was something mm-hmm. that I was experiencing. And also that my husband was experiencing, um, that made us leave. Um, so, I've got, there are a lot of, um, family ghost stories in my family as well. My, my parents fled from a poltergeist in France and, and, you know, or something that we call a poltergeist. And there's, I think there's so much about it, which is fascinating and, and says so much about the person experiencing the ghost, the trauma that they're going through or the, um, the, the worries that they've got. Mm. And I'm just, I'm fascinated by what that could be and what it could mean. And I'm never that interested in the neat ghost story. I don't want something that's explained, you know, it's, it's like in, um, I watch a lot of horror and I could almost always switch off three quarters of the way through and not see the ending. I'd be very happy with that with most horror movies because the, the human need to wrap things up in a bow and, you know, make 
make Tim Curry's clown into a giant spider is so disappointing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like Tim Curry as a clown is the single most frightening thing in the world. Mm -hmm. We don't need to know why he's a clown. Um, And as soon as they get human desires and needs, as soon as Tim Curry as a clown needs to feed on the tears of children, it's like, I need to feed on the flesh of a chicken. So we're Mm -hmm. kind of the same. (laughs) (laughs) It's a weird answer. (laughs) Oh dear. So, so uh, these ghosts, well, there's one ghost in particular, but at one point there's several ghosts at a certain point in the novel in this house. Um, uh, the central, if I can call it the central ghost, um, has, you know, experienced uh, violence and menace and women's um, experiences of violence and menace and feeling threatened, um, being spoken down to, um, being raped, living with the fear of violence um, and living in the context of menace. These are not unusual experiences. Um, This is part and parcel of the dailiness of life for a lot of women, for most women. These are lived experiences of so many of us and it's an absolute outrage that it is. And um, there's a universality and and timelessness about these experiences. Um, Had you been reflecting on that long before writing this particular novel? Um, And, you know, could you talk about that informing so much of the novel? It's sort of the Mm. overarching theme, isn't it, of the novel, is the violence that's done for centuries against women and um, the abuse that we've suffered and um, been, you know, at at the hands of men. Yeah, I think think my first two novels were really circling this one in a funny way. Mm -hmm. Uh, My first book, After the Fire Still Small Voice, is from the point of view of two men and it's about the the um I guess it's about the toxic masculinity that's laid on top of them and and how they're not able to um they're not able to communicate with each other it's a father and son and one's experienced his parents at war and then he's he's experienced the Vietnam war and then there's the third boy who hasn't had a war but has got the trickle-down effect um, and then the, the next book, All the Birds Singing, is about a woman who's been um, brutalised and living on her own and dealing with her guilt and the demons. And um, and so this felt like sort of every time I finished a book, I, I kind of had this feeling of it's not quite what I meant to say. Mm-hmm. It's in the ballpark, but it's not quite what I was going for. So... Um, I sort of touched on it before that this book was about going towards things that made me uncomfortable um, and that I knew would make other people feel uncomfortable. And so whenever I was writing something and thinking this feels a bit too much, too loud and too in your face and there's too much, um, you know, some of the comments about the book have been like, you know, oh, it's like every man in the book is this evil nightmare. And I don't think that's true true. for a start. But I also think that um, when you come back to the idea that every single woman has experienced something like this, and if they don't think they have, and they look back on their life, um, they'll find it there. You know, there have been a lot of 
uh, we had a um, a young woman called Sarah Everard murdered here um, last month and um, by a police officer. And one of the things that it has done is it's kind of unlocked this um, mass trauma of women remembering stuff that they hadn't really put in their brain as important but it, it's sort of thinking about the first time that something happened to them and for most of us it's around six or seven and then it could progress yearly you know you could probably find something in every year whether it's being a schoolgirl and being masturbated on um on the underground or um being snogged by a parent's friend or you know being tickled mm. <laughs> um overly tickled mm. um, which is a, a bugbear of mine um so I think yeah for me it was it was about facing those things head on and not listening to the voice in my head that was telling me to be polite and quiet and um and tone it down Mm. um it was about ramping it up really I think all girls I mean I guess I'm generalizing saying this but I think all girls are aware from a very young age I mean sort of Mm. when we're three to be wary of strangers and those strangers are always Mm. men aren't they um and to you know to, to sort of um always be clocking fear and be clocking uh strangers and that something bad Mm. will happen to you um Mm. I wanted to actually something you just mentioned before was um someone said that all the male characters in this novel are are terrible and they're not Chris and Michael in particular they're little boys when we Mm. first meet them and through these characters um children um you explore I think what patriarchy does to little boys and what what, uh, Mm. institutions and systems do to little boys. Um, Could you sort of expand on that, about that oppression and control um, that Michael and Christopher are under when they're children? Mm. Well, so they are... um, I kind of took their timeline again from my dad and my uncle's... um, who was sent off to boarding school at eight years old. Um, And, you know, it was very upper class British boarding school. And so it was very into corporal punishment, very into a hierarchy of, um, you know, you get beaten up or, you you know, you, you basically, your parents are paying for someone to take you away and do whatever they want to, um, to you. Mm. Um, And I think, you know, all of, all of my uncles are charming, lovely people who have been so damaged by that moment in their lives where they're, um, just sort of not even abandoned, but, you know, somebody's gone, take a lot of money to take these guys away. Um, and the, you know, there's a, there's a scene in the, um, book, which is, almost directly from my father's mouth where he's talking about a time he almost, I can say this now cause he's dead and no one's going to arrest him. Um, he almost killed someone on a train because he looked up and it was his old housemaster who had at one time brutalized him so horrendously when he was about nine, um, that he'd never, you know, he clearly never got over it. And, and 
that moment where he saw him on the train and wanted to push him off. And he always, you know, he always regretted not doing it um, because he imagined the response of all of the people, all of the boys who had been brutalized by this man who was clearly damaged himself from whatever war he fought in from whatever childhood he'd had. And it's sort of in the, it's really in the grain of everything, this um, horrendous treatment of children, um, male and female. I'm also curious about um, your use of uh, Sherelle Moody's project, the Australian mm. Femicide and Child Death Map. Um, I saw you tweet last week after you won the prize about that particular project. Mm-hmm. That um, So Sherelle yeah. Moody is a journalist. She's an award-winning journalist who's put together this project. Could you talk about the project, Evie, and the impact mm. it has had on your writing Yeah, so Sherelle Moody put together a sort of interactive map of Australia and it's got, um, if you look it up, it's got all of these red hearts all over it and each heart represents a murdered child or woman. Um, And what Sherelle does is she tries to get as much information about each person as possible sometimes there's a photograph and a name and a date of birth and a little section about who they were um but often it's just unknown female um which is really really chilling um and I think something about that map linked my voices together and made me really want to think about (laughs) you know, who was with those women when they died, apart from the obvious, um, apart from the person who um, ended their lives. I, I think the that sadness of it being totally unwitnessed and then being totally alone in this huge moment, these last moments of their life, it, it just felt like... Um, it felt like this massive malign presence you know, over the whole of the globe that there's this thing that is killing women and it's not an isolated incident with no further further threat to the public. It is this huge swathe, this blanket of um, witch hunting. Um, so I think Sherelle Moody's map really kind of um, pinpointed what I wanted to do. And there's a, there's a kind of there's a moment in the book where um, Maggie, who is a sort of slightly witchy woman um, in the present day, um, she talks about what if every single woman who had been murdered by a man was visible all at once. And and this idea of walking in and out of the death zone um, where something has happened to someone and that I, I suppose coming back to ghosts again, the kind of echo of their lives and their deaths. Um, and it just, it really spoke to me about what I wanted to do. Mm. One of the things about the character of Maggie is, uh, she's one of the most, well, compelling characters in the book. And as you said, she's kind of, a, I mean, she's a befriends Viv in, in, um, in contemporary life. And, uh, she, uh, is semi-homeless. She indulges, she not indulges, but she sometimes works as a sex worker. But she 
um, also has this freedom about her where she kind of moves through the world like a man with this sort of um, mm. she has very little fear, Maggie. Could you talk mm. about putting her in the novel? Because she's, she's kind of just intervenes in, in Viv's life, doesn't she? she? She sort of just comes out of nowhere one night at a, a 7-Eleven. Yeah, I think um, I think Maggie is, you know, I was thinking about what is a witch and it's just you are a witch if you say you're a witch and, you know, that was kind of my um, my thinking about Maggie. That, and like you said, she moves through the world like a man. <clears throat> and one of the things that, um, that being a witch means to her is listening to her intuition. So she, you know, we all get those moments where, our stomach drops and we know that something is wrong and we couldn't put a name to it. We couldn't say what we've picked up on. And because we've been taught all our lives as women to be polite and not make a fuss more often than not, we ignore it. And Maggie doesn't do that. She listens to it. And that is how she is, um, able to move around like a man. She is, um, accepting of those things about herself, her innate witchiness. Mm. Um, And I think I really wanted to tread a line with her that she's sort of the most annoying person on earth as well. She's like, she's sort of brilliant, but also on the edge of a pixie dream girl kind Mm -hmm. of nightmare. Mm -hmm. Um, But she is just, you know, what that means is that she is very, very alive and very present in her own life. Um, And she's a, a way of, she's got a self belief, I suppose she's got a way of moving through the world like um she matters and mm. and using her body in a way that um benefits her mm. one of the um things you canvass in the novel is um institutional abuse so several of the women in the novel have actually um been treated or are being treated in psychiatric facilities um in the case of ruth she's actually been gaslighted by her husband uh to be committed so he's suggesting that he will commit her if she uh remains uncompliant on the domestic front. Um, And one of the characters in the book will never recover from her treatment. Others are coping with the shame and guilt of being treated. And I'm I'm really curious about the research you did to investigate the the historical treatment of women in psychiatric facilities. Well, actually, funnily enough, there's um, a case of a woman called Maggie um, in Scotland um, who... They, they were still doing in the 1970s um, lobotomies, um, but they were, they basically essentially would go into your brain with a soldering iron and like mm. sort of smudge out the bits that they didn't like. Um, and there are these incredible videos of her. She was a, a mother of five. Um, and the, the reason that she was committed was um, she'd started to become violent, not towards her children, but towards other people. And I think, you know, having a young child at the point that I was reading about her, I recognised how, you know, you think that you have a baby and everything is flowers and life and springtime, but actually I've never thought so much about death and imminent death and danger, and I've never felt so angry at other people for, like, being near me and um and the the threat that they could cause to my 
kid. And so it's she made so much sense to me that she she had five of them. And so she was just like wigging out about, you know, what awful thing is going to happen next. And I think that's quite a common thing. You just, you're thinking about terrible deaths that will befall your, this thing that is now your heart kind of going off on its own. And, um, and so she made a lot of sense to me. And then in the, the video of her, it's a color video, which is really startling. And she's, sat down on a little chair very meekly holding her handbag in her lap and then there's a doctor in a white coat leaning up against his desk with his arms folded talking down to her very literally and telling her that you know now we're going Maggie we're going to do something for you because you're not having a nice time are you and you're, in, you're putting people in danger aren't you and talking in this deeply patronizing way like she's a toddler um and she's just there so um shrunk by him and agreeing to everything he says and then they show the surgery and in the surgery she is screaming about how she's awake and she's screaming about how they're doing this thing to her and she doesn't want it and it's just the most upsetting disturbing thing that um she's been coerced into agreeing to this thing. This thing is done to her. And then afterwards she can't speak for years. She can barely walk and she gradually gets a bit of, um, movement and a bit of, a bit of language back. And then she became this terrific advocate for, you know, consent around, around those kind of treatments. Um, so I, that was really where my thinking about, institutions came from and just how coerced Mm. women are into treatments and um how it's the same as everything else really that's an incredible story um so we've got about 15 minutes left evie so i thought i'd i'm really curious about tone and structure of this novel so so let's talk about um tone first of all because one of the things <laughs> that really impressed myself and the judging the judging panel one one of the things we marveled over was how the novel's tone flips depending on which point of view is being told in this story so the sections featuring sarah in the 1700s are written in a formal tone that's reminiscent of stories written centuries ago and you've written Ruth's sections in the 1950s in a tone that's in keeping with um, sort of uh, quite uptight social and domestic formalities of that era mm-hmm. and Viv's sections are written in a far more loose um, looser and contemporary tone so tell us about making the decision to write these sections in very different tones, because to me, that is where the novel could have fallen over if those tones were not cohesive and, and if they were too mm-hmm. clunkily sort of um, joined. But tell me tell me about and tell the audience about those decisions about tone. I think, yeah, the tone was a big worry to me, especially with the 1700s one. I was really anxious about not producing a sort of witch finder general sort of tone and and there's so much um there's so much of that about i think actually funnily enough it, the closest i could link it to was in my first book when i was writing about the vietnam war and there's so much pop culture about it 
that it's really hard not to fall into, you know, napalm and choppers and the psychedelia, the the American experience of it. And and what I did with that book was I just went, right, well, it's one man's experience. And and so that's kind of what I did with the 1700s. I um I sort of followed what um you know Jim Crace who wrote Harvest um he talks about how important it is to do like quite minimal research um and you know being a lazy person I absolutely agree um that the if you research research is so enjoyable you know, you, you always want to be like, oh, you know, I have to now, unfortunately, research cannibals for three <laughs> to four years and I can learn everything about them and um, and watch loads of movies and stuff. But actually <clears throat> what happens is you end up crowbarring in um, facts, little factoids and fascinating things. And, and that's not what storytelling is. So and I did the same thing with sheep in my second book that I didn't know anything about sheep and 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 I kind of needed to know a lot, but not what, um, not what books could tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, I needed to go after I'd written it and stay on a sheep farm and ask the farmers, like, what do you eat for breakfast and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did the same sort of thing with, um, with Sarah's part that it was important to try as much as possible to keep the language in fitting with the time, but not overdo it. Um, and also, you know, not crowbar in facts Mm. about 1700s and keep the date quite loose because in reality by the 1700s, there wasn't a lot of witch hunting going on, but this is like a little rural town and, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of about um, hoping that the reader will just sort of go, all right, we're with you and, um, and go with you. And then the, um, I think the thing that I find hardest of all is writing about a time and place that I'm in now. So Viv really was the trickiest one because I didn't want it to be exactly my voice. Um, you know, she's not exactly me, but she thinks in a similar way to me. So in a way that's the hardest and you've got to contend with things like mobile phones, which are the, you know, often the wrecker of all tension and, um, and kind of pop culture, um, which is hard to kind of steer away from. And, and one of the reasons that, again, I went into that rom-com idea, um, that it was a way of, of, looking at this point in time um through the lens of pop culture but without it without it kind of ironing out all of the possibilities for imaginative ghosty monsters and stuff that's really interesting because one of the things that strikes me about this novel is as much as I've talked and asked questions tonight a lot about setting and about the house and objects, um, it's actually not description heavy, this novel. It's very character driven. Mm. And so with Viv, um, you, you describe sort of very much what her actions are, what her body is doing, you know, what she's sort of doing from minute to minute, but you're not necessarily describing um 
you know, what the house it looks like at that particular time. Mm. Um, and mm. because obviously you're setting it in this incredible place, but but um, I think to your credit, it's it's not there's not passages and passages of like you know the glorious rural sort of landscape that you've set it in. <laughs> well, was that a conscious decision not to um, sort of labour? how extraordinary the the wilderness is there? I think my writing is heading more and more towards a a kind of cleaner um, aspect. I think I, everything I write now, I want to move the story along with, Mm -hmm. and I'm not really interested in the beauty of it. Um, I think when you, when I started writing um, my first book, it was, there was very much this idea of like, you can write anything as long as it's beautiful. And, um, and I don't think you can. I think, um, if you've got a passage that is just rhapsodizing on a landscape, you might as well do a painting or Mm. take a photograph. And, and I'm a big believer in leaving gaps for the reader to put their own information into. I think that's one of the really exciting things about reading and writing is that everybody who reads the book even though they're reading the same words they'll have a totally different um picture of what it all looks like and what it all means depending on their life experience and that is um an integral part of of the process of writing for me to to leave gaps where there's ambiguity and you know it fills in and for some people that's a nightmare <laughs> but I, it's the kind of book that I enjoy reading that I'm not being told stuff I'm figuring it out myself mm-hmm. and I'm also curious about um I mean I sort of have this image in my head of uh this book in when you're drafting it being quite the sort of jigsaw in terms of where particular mm-hmm. sections go um you know who gets to speak and when because as we've discussed it's very much told in particular sections by particular people so how did all mm-hmm. that I mean, was it a, a complete nightmare trying to make the whole thing join up? Could you talk us through that process? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's always a nightmare. I work in such a messy way. Mm-hmm. I start somewhere in the middle and then I like spider out, you know, up and down and both and left and right. And and then there's normally a point um, for about six months from the end where I print it all out and try and work out what order it should go in to best tell the story. And, and that normally involves chucking out a load of stuff because once you, um, are fixed on a structure, you kind of have to keep to it. Um, so yeah, it it is very much like a, a maths equation at some point. Um, and every time I start a novel, I'm like, right, this is going to be the one that starts at the beginning and ends at the end and it's going to be just straightforward telling and it's all going to be nice and easy and then there's always a point where it's just like it's just not how my brain works I think for me so much comes together in the last year of writing and it's about getting lost in it and writing way too much and going off in way too many directions and finding your way out of that sort of labyrinth Mm -hmm. is the structuring and is the way that it turns into a novel and it's not just a load of incoherent nightmarish whooping. And to what extent are you getting feedback from editors in in those final drafts? Are you sharing it? Yeah, I've got um I've got my husband's my first reader 
um because he's an editor he's uh we met doing a creative writing course so I feel like we're not divorced yet um and and then I show it to uh my agent to make sure I'm not insane and that it's not gonna upset my editor and then I send it to my editor so um normally there are maybe two drafts go to the editor Mm -hmm. I think um and what they're really fantastic at is um, it's not, you know, there is a line by line editing situation that comes on about um, punctuation and and word choice and stuff. But really, it's about um, asking the right questions. And that's what my editors are great at. They're just like, you know, do we think Viv would do this here? They're very politely kind of make like an eel through it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think... Yeah, it's, I feel like they're very, very important, but I don't bring them in until the book is somewhere close to finished. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just before we wrap up, I thought I'd ask you about, um, well, two things. First of all, the impact of literary prizes on your career and on your creativity, because you've won a lot. You've had a lot of acclaim, a lot of notice right from the get-go of your of your first book. Could you talk about the impact of that? Um, as I sort of flagged at the beginning of the, the session, there's uh, it, it's quite the CV, Evie. So, so talk about those literary prizes and the impact that all that's had on your um, confidence and creativity. Um, I won the John Llewellyn Reese for my first book and that was £5,000, I think. And that really, I look at that as that's how I wrote my next book. That was, um, it's, it's quite hard out there. Um, and you know, there, there are so many books and so many brilliant books. Um, it's as, as the confidence thing, I don't think you ever feel like, you know, you're always feeling like an imposter. There are so many thousands of fantastic books that could just as, easily have won and deserve to win um so every time you win something there is that little thing of like maybe it's better not to have won it but to I don't know to feel kind of I don't know brought along with a long list or a short list or something um but you're always a bit like do I really deserve this I don't know it seems weird I do a very selfish thing I lock myself away and write stories it seems um, it seems weird to be given a prize for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I do think that, uh, you know, especially in the, the year that we've just had um, where women's work is, is so marginalised with housework and mm-hmm. childcare and everything, this year to me felt like an incredible one to win this award to win the stellar on um because it's so about women and non-binary writers work it, it's it shines a light on it in a way that um that perhaps other prizes don't um and it's been such a supportive one as well you know you really feel like there's a team of people behind you um so for me like this has been like the win of my career so far um it's just been lovely Oh, how fantastic to hear that. Um, 
Look, I, and I can report being um, part of the team in the in the past eight months. Just what a supportive um, experience it's been um, that Daniela and Jacqueline from the Stella Prize have made just for the judges alone. But you know, and you saying that as a winner is just wonderful to hear. Um, could we ask, given COVID was on last, uh, you know, has been sort of. Um, thwarting a lot of us for the Going last on. <laughs> 12 months or so. Could you please talk about what you're working on now, Evie? And I'm curious about whether COVID has impacted your the types of things you're writing about and the types of things that are inspiring you in writing. I'm sure it has, but I, I don't know how to how to recognize that until I've finished it, I think. Maybe there'll be um I'm I'm certainly not someone who is um, any good or interested in writing about like current affairs, even though the, you know, the Bass Rock seems to be something that we're all talking about at the minute. It's because we have been thinking about it for so long. Um, but so really what I'm, I'm writing a sort of much more straightforward ghost story, um, touch wood, uh, again, that will start at the beginning and go straight to the end, hopefully. Um, but I, I sort of wanted to write something that's a bit smaller, um, a bit more focused on just a relationship and um, and really kind of getting into the nuts and bolts of just two people. Um, mm-hmm. That's my plan, but it's very early days <laughs> and it, I'm sure it will blow up and turn into a giant mess. <laughs> well, we can't wait to see what you produce next. And um, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you for the last hour, Evie Wild. And once again, congratulations on winning the 2021 Stella Prize. Please give Evie another round of applause. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for coming out this evening and for those who are streaming at home. Happy reading of the 2021 Stella Prize winner. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the 2021 Stella Prize winner, Evie Wilde, in conversation with Elizabeth McCarthy, presented in partnership with the Stella Prize. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. For more conversations, visit wheelercentre.com.